Greetings programs and welcome to the latest episode of the Awesome Friday Movie Podcast. This week we are here with a very special episode uh, bringing to you an idea that I had for a podcast a long time ago that we are piloting, which I'm going to call Make Remake, in which we're going to talk about every version of a popular film. This week we're talking about The Thing from Another World and The Thing and the thing <laughs> i just love how you are determined to make make remake happen it's been years and years that's been bubbling away it for is. a long time I'm, it's like fetch it, it's never gonna happen but I don't know, it's <laughs> happening now it's happening right now that's true that's true anyway my name is matthew with me as always is simon hi. say hello again hi simon. hi i'm still here yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we're doing the thing we're doing the thing about thing uh Things. and also the original thing from another world uh, and this, you know, I've liked this idea for a long time and I'm excited to do it. And we're starting with this film because Simon bought the Blu-ray of The Thing and The Thing. And I think we're going to have to start calling them by their years or something because this is going to get really confusing <laughs> That's fine. really quickly. Uh, I, do, I do. Uh, yeah, I, I do love the things. You're correct that I did push pretty hard for. <laughs> I have been pushing some kind of thing rewatch for a while as well, because I um, I imported the thing 1992 and thing 2011 as a double pack Blu-ray. I found it somewhere. I managed to import it. And um, the 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 thing about the <laughs> Gosh. The thing about the thing, 82, <laughs> is that it has. I, I was born in '77, so I grew up in the in the mid to late '80s. Was a time when I really enjoyed watching B movies, and and my parents would go to bed, and this was a time before you could choose what to watch on TV. And luckily, on Channel Four, um, one of our four terrestrial channels. Um, they would often show things like the brains from outer space and uh, ants from Mars and things like that. And, and they were always like ultra low budget. Like there's one of my favorites actually, which is called like Attack of the Killer Brains maybe or Brains from Space. The brains are literally on sticks and they don't try and hide that. And they don't try and hide it's people. <laughs> sticks. And at one point the, 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 the brains break into through glass and you can see the bamboo on the bottom of them. And, and, because everyone sells it, like I think the we could talk a lot about these old black and white movie actors. They they sell the moment. Uh, it's just something I really really love. And so there's some movies that I feel when I was growing up that was this like transition from B movies to like sci-fi kind of monster movies that are kind of B movies but with a bit more budget made by amazing directors. So you had the thing and you had. Um, Alien, of course, and you had The Fly, and that's a good one. Just um, the these um, really great directors doing this kind of schlocky B movie thing, but selling it seriously. So not like what Tim Burton did with Attack on Mars, which was like a pastiche, if you like. They they did it for real. Like oh, you mean Mars Attacks? Okay. Oh, what did I say? Yeah, Attack on Mars. Sorry, sorry, Mars Attacks. No, Mars Mars Attacks is very much a pastiche and homage to the cheesiness yeah. of the 50s yeah. as opposed to an update thereof yeah yeah totally uh, so which I, I love for the record <laughs> i love that movie. i know i'm in the minority but i love that yeah movie. no i do not know but the um the the 82 thing has a very special place in in my heart and i guess it's the same for you there's only a few years between us these this kind of schlocky 
sci-fi monster movie must have been part of your growing up as well. I mean, you I know you love Godzilla and Universal Monsters. Did you watch like sci-fi B movies as well? I did, but to be totally honest, The Thing, the original version of The Thing was not really part of my canon until I was already an adult. Uh, and that's something I think we can talk about a little bit later when we're talking about that film a little mm -hmm. bit more. Um, but yeah. the short version is that I grew up with things like Terminator and Robocop and lots of schlocky B-movies, not unlike the first one we're going to talk about on late night mm -hmm. TV. But for whatever reason, I think probably because my my one of my parents didn't like it or something, but we never had the thing on VHS and it wasn't on TV where I lived all that often. And part of that, again, we'll have to come back to this when we're speaking about the 1982 movie, but is that in, in its time, it actually wasn't very well received. It only really became a classic over time. Mm -hmm. uh, unlike some of the other films that I grew up with, but that's getting ahead of ourselves, I think. So why don't we just dive right into 1951's The Thing from Another World. The interesting thing about this is that I was kind of aware of this movie, but I did not know until literally like last week that both The Thing and The Thing <laughs> were based on this movie, or, or in fact, adapted. They're all adapted from the same short story. Yeah. And it was, um, what happens in The Thing from Another World? Give us a synopsis. Well, here's a quick synopsis of all three of these movies, because they're all basically <laughs> the same movie. Yeah. Um, in a region of the Arctic or Antarctic, uh, an alien spacecraft has crashed, and some humans at a remote base uh uncover said alien and it turns out to be hostile and kills everyone sort of um the interestingly enough the 1951 version of this film is the most divergent from the other two and from the source material uh in this one they discover this aircraft and they discover a body and they bring it inside and it turns out to be a plant-based alien who feeds <laughs> on blood I can't and there's a imagine. lot of there's a lot of little elements that are really similar to the two, like the involvement of sled dogs and just that it's you know disappearing into the night and coming out to kill people. But the uh, the actual monster is quite different. The alien itself, the thing itself, is quite different than the other two. And from what I understand, although I haven't read it from the original story, that I did love how for some reason John Carpenter, when he remade this, decided not to make his monster quote quoted in the 51 as a giant sentient carrot like <laughs> they're trying to describe so are you telling me it's a giant sentient carrot yes i am it's a vegetable it has no arterial system it's imagine a world <laughs> yeah <laughs> imagine a world where vegetables made the same ev evolutionary leap as we did like yeah. it's just full of just what is now a cliche on many many levels but it's a cliche for a good reason um yeah so I guess the when, yeah they find this alien they bring it inside it's made a it's a plant not a not an animal and it feeds on blood and it reproduces itself via blood it doesn't the, this story actually basically removes all but removes the imitation aspect of the story so they're just fighting a monster really uh, unless I missed something but really other than the monster being bipedal <laughs> it doesn't actually imitate anyone in particular uh, and also different maybe not totally different but different than the later two movies uh, it really paints the scientists as sort of naive and stupid 
but also paints the few military people who are on board as being patriotic and heroic, and they know they need to kill that monster right away, or it's going to invade. Uh, it's pretty great. So let me just summarize this movie by saying that it is ultimately delightful in the way that only a 1950s monster movie can be, really. <laughs> It's got many of the classic hallmarks in that it tries to save as much money as possible by telling us there's a giant, there's a flying saucer under the ice and never actually showing it to us. It's just the men looking down through the white floor of the studio. Oh my God, it's so big. You can see the engine over here. And then um, there's another point. If you remember, they, they chop its arm off and um, they are dissecting this arm and they're all gathered around and the camera is directly behind the head of one person who very conveniently sits between the camera and this thing. So you never actually <laughs> see what's being dissected until it starts moving. And then it's like clearly someone's hand in a glove. And um, it was uh, like when they pull the ice in, there's a wonderful moment. They, they dig up, they find the thing, uh, the alien, and they dig him up and they drag him in. And you can't see through this giant piece of foam. And But they're looking at it like, Look, it's got claws. It's easily seven foot tall. <laughs> it's just like we do. It's, and, and it's just that classic kind of B movie. We have no money, but we're going to tell you how scared you are. <laughs> yeah. It's also pretty great just because it's also from 1951. So there's some pretty, uh, what's the best way to say this? There's some, definitely some pretty <laughs> dated cultural norms on display, which if you can't get past, Maybe you can. Maybe you can. Maybe you can't. I don't know. I am. I'm pretty keen to put that stuff aside when I'm watching a movie this old. But in the first couple of scenes, all the male officers have definitely talked about being distracted by the dames. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the first five minutes. Uh, maybe where's the captain? Maybe he got distracted by another pretty girl. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but on the other side, the uh, the one female character in this is kind of great. She's you know, amazing. she's a she's a pretty great 1950s. She's not totally enfranchised, but she's definitely like the one there who everyone's like, go do this woman. And she's like, I'm a scientist, not a woman. You type. can tell there's the, it's right on the cusp of that change, right? Where yeah. uh, there's, because it turns out she's like the ex fling of the captain and he's come to see her. And she's like, ah, oh, you had fun, didn't you? It was just one night. <laughs> yeah. So she's like this liberated scientist. Uh, and she she does actually have my favorite line in the whole movie though which is uh so early so yeah, it does turn out that the military captain who's flown up flown everyone up to this arctic base where she is comes to see her and they start talking about this drunken night they spent together that he doesn't remember <laughs> he says something about like he tries to like say oh it was fine and she's like it wasn't totally fine <laughs> and he says well, what else did i do and she says well you did your best octopus impression i haven't seen so many hands in my whole life <laughs> 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 oh yeah i loved her yeah the, yeah and honestly like they do talk like that we're not talking like this just because it's really. funny they really do talk in that 1950s mid-atlantic cadence yeah. and accent and it's pretty and great it's, and uh, what's really amazing is the delivery of the thing you you kind of forget that modern movies take their time to make sure you hear every line this movie was a bit like primer and like many many times they're just speaking over each other okay you get the gun hey, go on, go on. okay you do this and there was just uh I really like that effect of trying to even just hear snippets of two or three people talking over each other in that, like you say, that beautiful, uh, like transatlantic American accent. And um, the, 
the scientists were were nicely kind of nefarious without being evil. Like they were in it for science. Science doesn't care about life. We should die to allow yeah. this thing to live. And of course, the scientist gets his comeuppance. But no one's like, none of the humans are inherently evil or already turn in the way that, that some of them in especially a two thing do. But the um, the the monster uh, is another. Uh, curiously human-shaped <laughs> monster. <laughs> but what I didn't know about this is, so you've got this guy who's very clearly in a suit, but I've seen, an, uh, a couple of years ago, I saw um, uh, a documentary about movie scenes, like how they did special effects in the 50s. And this was part of it. And I didn't realize until I saw the scene. So if you remember when they're waiting for this thing to come in and burn it alive. Mm-hmm. So I've seen a whole breakdown of how that, how they did that and i didn't know so it was me doing my leonardo dicaprio impression oh i've seen this and basically they <laughs> sorry this they, is ahead of the scene where it comes inside and they use kerosene to light it on fire right. that's right so which features some some pretty great pyrotechnics and some pretty great performances by a man who's literally covered in fire and extinguished i think twice in the same yeah. scene without a cut which is pretty great absolutely and the the pyrotechnics are petrol <laughs> that's yeah. the, there's a bucket at one point you see him in the middle just as he's like being doused off someone throws a, a lit bucket of petrol on him and he's like flaming and um i will i'll try and find out where i saw this because it's, uh, it's really fascinating how they did this and and nobody actually died so yeah. congratulations <laughs> the four safety regulations well <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and honestly like so I think we're kind of we're kind of rushing through this one to be totally honest. I think we're both sort of itching to get to 1982, which is a classic, and 2011. And I also have some stuff I'd like to talk about once we sort of talk about all three of them individually about their similarities and differences. But yeah. my biggest surprise of this film is that I expected to like it, um, but I kind of loved it. You oh, know, yeah. like it's kind of a delightful romp. I was totally expecting just a sort of normal, straight up the middle. 50s monster movie but it turns out that kind of thing is kind of my jam i think yeah i think it feels like we're rushing it because like many movies of that time it's it does exactly what it says on the tin like you know who these people are you know what this story is going to be and it's basically that them trapped and being uh, industrious to try and not die and it is absolutely uh, it's it's charming and kind of scary in a kind of enjoyable Doctor Who kind of way, and um, well, in um, a, in a nineteen fifties yeah way, and <laughs> it's also unlike the other two. It's a it's not nihilistic like the eighty two and two thousand eleven are yeah. downer movies with downer yeah. endings, and this movie ends with them killing the monster and then broadcasting to the world to watch the skies. Watch the skies. This was only the first salvo. Watch the skies. You know <laughs> Um, but yeah i mean if if you if you want if you haven't really watched b movies before this would be an excellent primer because it has so many characteristics of movies at that time and it it does it really really well everything's just done really well considering they probably didn't have much money to do it to begin with yeah and honestly i think it would be a good one to start with as well for that reason and for the reason that despite diverging from the source material like i mentioned it's still very recognizably the thing yeah like it's still all the main story beats are there yeah um and all the same sort of archetypal archetypical archetypal 
sure. archetypal characters are there. Uh, and it's, uh, it is, again, despite the fact that it diverges, it's still very much that movie and that story, which is, it's just kind of interesting to watch that story change and or not change over time. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. So shall we move on to The Thing, 1982? Yeah. Let's move on to 1982's John Carpenter-directed classic, The Thing, which features a wonderful performance by Kurt Russell and a couple more wonderful supporting performances by the likes of Keith David and Wilford Brimley. And um, I can't remember all their names now. There's so many sort of great people in it. Um, And also uh, a pretty amazing score by John Carpenter himself. Probably debatably his best score. Uh, Morricone did a little bit of it as well, didn't he? He does a theme in there. It's good. It's very, very good. Yeah, I think it's, uh, for me, in terms of his scores, it's probably down to that or Halloween, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because if you didn't know, um, you know, he scores a lot of his own movies. So he's a a multi-hyphenate, as it were. So, I mean, very much like the 1951 film, uh, but very much different in the way the plot executes. This movie starts with, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, a dog running across the Antarctic tundra and being pursued by two Norwegian men in a helicopter who chase it all the way to this American base. When the dog gets there, it quickly integrates itself into the camp as a dog. And the Norwegians accidentally blow themselves up so they can't. And the one who could who actually didn't get killed at that moment, gets killed by a gunshot later and didn't speak English anyway, so it didn't really matter. And uh, the dog is quickly, not actually not that quickly, revealed to be an alien organism, a, a parasitic alien organism that can imitate and take over any organic being that it encounters, including this dog and later many members of the cast. The rest of the film is a slow, tense terrifying thriller paranoid horror thriller where nobody trusts anyone and it's kind of great it also features some landmark special effects practical special effects from 1982 fully one-tenth of this movie's budget was spent just on raw materials to make gross looking creatures which is kind of incredible um and yeah what what do you think about this movie simon what do you think so my it's interesting when you describe the beginning of this movie with a dog running across the ice and the uh, the worst shots in the world in the helicopter trying to shoot this dog. I, I mentioned before this is one of the movies where I, I sort of transitioned from black and white films into things like this. I remember really, really clearly first time watching this movie. And I was pretty used to movies having a beginning that mm-hmm. adds a con that sets a context. I remember seeing this dog run and shooting this dog and then the, the Norwegian getting shot and the dog going in and who are these people? Like you can't you can't start a movie like that. Like who 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 are these people? What's going on? And uh it's it's I mean John Carpenter's a master anyway, but it's just a masterpiece of storytelling that of course Star Wars does this as well. Like episode four or what became episode four, the original Star Wars starts in the middle of something and and just gives you all the context you need to try and catch up as you go and yeah so for me i should say that we're talking about these movies uh, in the reverse order that i actually watched them so 
I watched 2011, which turns out to be a direct moment-to-moment prequel to 82. And so what's, what I found really interesting is seeing that connective tissue, but I'll talk more about that later. But overall, this, this film uh, really epitomizes what so many films have c- tried to kind of latch onto, which is that uh, the real horror is each other. You know, it really builds on that paranoia and mistrust. And I think it really, really helps that you've got Kurt Russell as your protagonist, who is a JB drinking um, sort of uh, isolation in his hut and he hasn't slept for a couple of days. So you've got this grumpy, sleepy, uh, slightly drunk guy anyway. And the, the apart from the absolutely disgusting practical effects, which are so affecting even now, even after watching it so many times, the way it kind of turns that screw onto who can you trust and, and what happens to trust when it gets broken. It's a masterpiece. I mean, especially in the context of the films that have come since this film that have shown it to be so influential, but um, it's, a, it's a real masterpiece of cinema. So I, I don't know, it's, I do love 2011 as well, but just from a directing point of view, it really shows you that John Carpenter is like next level, <laughs> really. Yeah, I think I think what he really is able to focus on, and I think he takes what you're talking about, I think he might take some influence from the original Night of the Living Dead, which was one of the first real horror films that I can remember. I'm sure it's not the first ever, but one of the first ones where like the real horror was the people inside the building, right? Not the not the zombies outside. Yeah. And this one really nails all of the characters, even the you know, the side characters without a ton of dialogue are all really well fleshed out yeah. in what little dialogue and scenes that they have. Yeah. You really get the sense that these people have been living together for at least a few weeks and really already growing tired, uh, growing used to, but also tired of their respective idiosyncrasies. Um, uh, also, Kurt Russell has an amazing hat, just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> um, so by the, by the time stuff starts kicking off, and one of the things that I think makes this one the superior of the three is how long it takes for stuff to really start kicking off. Mm. Um, it really takes a long time out of its hour and 40 odd minute runtime, I think it is. Um, it takes quite a long time before the first real big gory scare happens and that feels very purposeful and it works incredibly well uh, for a reason that I'll talk about a bit more once we get to the point where we're just comparing all three of them Um, but you you get the sense that these men are all already frustrated but already respect one another to the point where I think my favorite moment in this film is and it's a pretty iconic moment uh, which you've probably seen in a thousand memes at least and it's the scene where Kurt Russell now, things already have gone to pot and Kurt Russell is recording on a tape recorder and he's starts recording by saying, I'm just recording this so that if we don't make it, there's a record. And he has a bit of a monologue, but there's a moment where, and this is the meme part where he says, nobody trusts each other now. And we're all very tired. And it's a pretty great line in context in the film. But my favorite part of that movie of that scene is actually that he then immediately stops the tape and rewinds it and records over it, which tells you that he doesn't want that whoever finds it to figure out or to know how bad it actually got, 
how much they didn't trust each other, how much they were at each other's throats. And I think the, you know, little character moments like that in the film are what make a film like this, you know, the, for better or for worse, the, the practical effects, which are beautiful for the record are still special effects from 1982. You can still see through them despite their being terrifying. Uh, but you wouldn't care about any of it if you didn't care about the people who were involved. And Kurt, Kurt Russell, that scene with Kurt Russell, I think sort of epitomizes that in the rest of the film for me. Yeah, Jack, I love how you say that he takes time and the there's a beautiful build to when this dog has been taken in by them basically sleeping at my feet, which is like the most trustful thing ever, isn't it? A sleeping dog by your feet while you relax. And then everyone goes to bed and in one of many moments where Carpenter just relaxes and dials down the pace and just allows things to happen really slowly again in contrast to 2011 but we'll get to that um and the dog through shadow initially and then you see him just walking very slowly through these quiet halls and walking into a seeing someone in a room and pausing and walking in and then the shadow of that person just looking behind them before the fade Mm -hmm. and it's just like an expert moment of turning the screw, like showing us that something is coming mm-hmm. in a way, in a way that that subtlety 2011 doesn't have. Like it's that, that absolute confidence in your art to take your time and just be slow in what you're about to do. And you're right about the characters as well. Like there's, you, you know who all the people are, and you know their characters and you know that how they fit together from a very early point and so when it when it comes to the point where they're all huddled in the same room being forced to do a certain thing to find out which is the the thing or not you have an idea of who all these people are this will this is something i want to come back to when we talk about the ensemble in 2011 but the um the it's a bit like jaws right it's a bit like jaws it's a bit like alien like if you if you take your time and just slowly build and build, when you actually pull that trigger, then you're going to have way more impact, and and then then you accelerate. You don't you don't show too much at the beginning because you need a moment to accelerate from. And these you're right about the special effects. You can see you can see that some of them are clearly puppets, and some of them are are, are done very very physically, but they're all like genius level bits of special effects oh yeah no no doubt yeah Um, this this is something that i want to talk more about once we get to the comparison part at the end here a little bit yeah but but like there's no part of the special effects in this movie that are not genius even if it comes just to the regular to there's a few moments of pyrotechnics that are incredible in this and must have taken can't even imagine how much work and planning it must have been to make the fire do the things that it does in some parts of this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The what's interesting as well is the end of this film. Like, so, so they, if you haven't seen this, you imagine that they they fight the swing and they, the thing and they dwindle one by one. And there is a kind of a hero moment. There is a wonderful line that he shouts that sounds completely completely impromptu as he he asks the thing to leave his presence but in different words and so there is a hero moment but then the film just like the beginning kind of defies all expectations and doesn't give you any answers as to whether this thing is dead at the end what do you think about the ending 
like in terms of not just um, how it's handled, but what's your theory as to who, who is human at the end? My theory is that it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> but what do uh, you think? Like, what, no, so your- like, I guess this is the type of thing where, and I, I hate to draw this comparison sort of so directly, but a few years ago, there was a, a little film called Inception that had a very hotly debated ending with a spinning top and people were debating the entire time and to this day about whether the top would topple over or keep spinning forever. And if you weren't part of that conversation, then maybe you're better off than we are. But anyway, my point with the story is that my feeling the whole time was that in talking about whether the top was falling over or not was sort of the wrong thing to be talking about because the actual thing to to notice in that scene isn't the top, it's the fact that the character who spun the top had accepted his reality. And I think in this movie, it doesn't really matter if um, McCready, who is uh, Kurt Russell, or Childs, who is the always amazing Keith David, it doesn't really matter if one of them is the thing or not because they're stranded in the middle of the Arctic. They don't trust one another and they're about to die <laughs> and it cuts I, to black. I do love the mental gymnastics of if like, if Charles is the thing, there's, there's one theory that Charles is the thing because of his, like he's, he's drinking gasoline or whatever. But if Charles is the thing and we're pretty sure that um, McCready is human, then it adds even more kind of, depth to that last moment where they're just looking at each other knowing that they're both going to die anyway and I I kind of love that as well it's handled really really well and I I do like now I do like movies that kind of leave you dangling in that way in a satisfying kind of way I mean yeah I mean ultimately the I think the the key one of the key moments in that last scene which for those of you who haven't seen it although I assume most of you have is after Kurt Russell has defeated the sort of main thing the main monster and Childs has been AWOL from this point. He disappears right before the big sort of climax and he comes back at the end. The base is ruined. McCready is drinking. Childs shows up and he's like, McCready's like, where were you? And Childs is like, I got slots in a storm. And they sort of, they end up staring, sort of staring each other down. They know they're the last two left. They both know they're going to die. And uh, they, they have to wait for a rescue team, which is not going to come for months. And Childs says something along the lines of, do you think we're going to make it? And McCready says, maybe we shouldn't. And ultimately, I think it comes down to that. I think my one of my takeaways in rewatching these films again this week is that maybe you don't actually really know if you're the thing until the moment you need to be the thing. <laughs> so it's a surprise to you as well. Then. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, maybe not. But, you know, if... There, you could, I could really go either way, but I think my, again, my answer stands. I don't think it matters which one, if one of them is the thing or not. I think what matters is that neither one of them trust one another and they're both about to die. Right? They, it's, 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 it's a really nihilistic and depressing ending, but it's, the, it's a more impactful ending than trying to happy it up by making sure one of them's human, to me. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. With that, should we move on to 2011's The Thing, starring yeah, Mary Elizabeth Winstead? Oh, say, say it again. Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Joel Edgerton and a host of other actors, uh, sort of a who's who of Norwegian and Danish actors, actually, mm-hmm. which makes sense because this film takes place in a Antarctic base owned by Norway 
and Kate, uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, her character is brought on board as an expert cold weather paleontologist to help them make, uh, excav excavate a find in the Antarctic. And that find turns out to be a giant spaceship and an alien being frozen in the ice. Uh, they excavate a big block of ice with an alien in it. They bring it inside. It eventually thaws. And the plot of the 1982 movie then proceeds to play out. That's that's pretty much the whole movie. That's pretty much it. But it's, it actually has quite a lot in common with the original 51 as well in terms of yeah, this is, and... this is one of the things I want to get to when we talk about comparing them is how much each of them has and has not in common with another. Um, mm. But this one very much ha definitely has more in common with the beginning of the 51 version, whereas the 82 has very much in common with sort of the last half of the 1980 mm -hmm. of the 1951 version. Um, so what do you think? of 2011 thing like how did this sit for you i think i probably liked it more than you but so i think it's fine to be perfectly yeah. frank i think it's fine i don't think it's as good as 82 i don't think it's as enjoyable as 51 just on a pure nostalgia glasses level mm -hmm. um but i think it's fine i think it has some pretty serious flaws that keep it from being great i don't think those flaws unlike many other people i don't think that those flaws are strictly speaking the cgi although the cgi is something worth talking about mm -hmm. um for me it's that it fails on some pretty basic storytelling levels it gets going once they get to antarctica things start happening relatively quickly and without a lot of setup and it kind of doesn't 100 percent work for me I think that Mary Elizabeth Winstead is good. I think that Joel Egerton is good. I think that actually, I think that basically everyone who's in it is good. Um, I actually really enjoy Ulrich Thompson, who plays the sort of head scientist, uh, who has a lot in common with the 1951 yeah, head really scientist. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher his name. I always butcher his name, but Adewale Akinoye. Agbaje, anyway, Adewale, who plays Joel Egerton's best friend, is also, I think, quite good. And the first one to see the thing in the film. Mm -hmm. um, but where the, and like, so we'll talk about the CG in a minute, but I think where the, where the film ultimately fails is, can, can be explained by the first time we see the thing. And that's because we have no context for expecting the character who turns out to be the thing to be the thing. Like if you watch it again, there's exactly no setup for him to be the thing. And I find that remains true throughout the movie. <laughs> Isn't that just playing against your expectations? Because the film wants us to think it's the guy who's sick. Right. So isn't it isn't it a bit of aha? Well, I mean, of surprise. course, of course, that's the intent. But if you think back to the beginning of the 1982 thing, there's a solid 10 or 15 minutes of just the dog wandering around. And by the time someone is revealed to be the thing, it really could be anyone. And there's enough context mm -hmm. for you there to believe that it could be anyone. Mm -hmm. Whereas in this movie, the first time the thing appears, there's one character with a lot of context for you to believe him to be the thing, and another character with exactly zero context for you to believe that he's <laughs> going to be the thing, and that's the character that turns out to be the thing. Yeah, and like and it's such an easy solve too, right? Like you just you just show him like walking into a room with some goo on the door, some you know something. Show something. 
But and then the second character revealed to be the thing, I think it is, who is the other woman researcher. Also, no context. She just happens to be the thing. You know, it's there's not as much care put into the basic storytelling and the basic world building as there is in, I would argue, either of the previous versions. Why? What do you think? How do you feel about this movie? I think you do. I think I don't to be clear. I don't like it. I think it's fine. Um, yeah. I think you probably like it more than I do. You, you don't like it or you don't hate it? I don't hate it. I right. think it's I think it's a pretty perfect three out of five. Like, it's fine. I think the good stuff outweighs the bad stuff, but there's enough bad stuff that it's not great. So I don't I don't disagree with anything you're saying. Uh, my, uh, my, not issue, <laughs> you have to remember that I love Mary, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. I, she's one of the most, for me, watchable actresses. I just love any, anything she does. And I love... Um, sci-fi movies with female leads uh kicking kicking back of course um that they're, they're definitely tapping into the kind of the the history of, of ripley in this a little bit i think but what i found interesting going from 2011 to um to the others is what i didn't like about 2011 was many parts of the script and how kind of lack like lack of create like creative input in the script. There's one beautiful moment, actually, I'm just gonna read um, an extract to you. So Mary Elizabeth Winston is working in her lab and her friend who is established is like some, some kind of old best friend who is this research assistant of the baddie scientist comes in and introduces Kate to him. And the scientist says, I, I'm Dr. Sandra Hubbles. And she says, Kate Lloyd. And, she, and he says, yes, do you know who I am? <laughs> and I was like, this is crying out for a naked gun style, your doctor sounds about Hamilton, <laughs> like, <Okay. scripts. laughs> it's like, it's a wonderful scene that um, is kind of, it encapsulates a lot of this movie in that uh, it's kind of dumb in places where it shouldn't be dumb. And it, yeah, it, could, that's it could have been a lot. It could have been a lot better. It's got the uh, it's got the dude for Game of Thrones with a big beard in it. They could have used uh, him a bit more. What's Christoph Hubschu? Right. So he's in it, but not enough. And the the ensemble of people. Good luck keeping up with who all these people are, because um, it, it they get many of them get lost in the noise. And and like you're saying, like. The, the revelation of who is the thing is done for audience shock rather than story context or or to make like the kind of logical sense where this would go, which is fine. I don't need everything to be like perfect, but um, as this film, so they find the, this flying saucer and then they, they bring this thing back. And of course the scientist wants to say, take a sample. And there's so many moments in this film where any sane person would go, actually, no, we're, we're not gonna, we're not gonna leave this block of ice here to melt. We're not gonna drill into it and take a sample. Like we're gonna call the military, <laughs> and we're gonna get like a full hazmat suit brought in here. But of course, the the evil scientist was also evil and um, spurred on by science, but in a much more kind of uh, um, fatalistic way than in fifty one. But so in a much a more dumb... self in a much more self-serving way too yeah. than in 51 that's another thing we can talk about at the end but the, yeah the the character the, the thing is that the 
the unlikable characters in 2011 are all assholes. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not necessarily unlikable for story reasons. They're unlikable because they're assholes. <laughs> yeah. And th- there's a there's a crash and they, they miraculously somehow, they, they establish uh, crash beyond the ridge. There's no way we could reach them. And then they come back like, well. How, yeah, how, yeah, you're how, talking how, about how did... right after the first, during the, the first scene where the thing appears takes place on a helicopter and the helicopter crashes. And yeah. then they all talk for a long time about how they couldn't couldn't possibly rescue them. They're too far away. They're beyond the ridge. And then yes. 20 minutes later, the two <laughs> yeah, pilots are. just wander back, <laughs> I guess, over the ridge. It's, you know, it's like you're saying, it's kind of dumb in places where it shouldn't be dumb. And and you kind of, you I think the audience is meant to want, assume that they are the thing and so when they turn out not to be the thing you're like well how the hell did they survive the thing you've established to be not there's a lot about this i really really do like and there's a couple of shots where they play into the idea where the thing cannot replicate inorganic material so kate works out through finding metal fillings that the thing cannot um, regenerate anything that isn't organic so there's a couple of shots towards the end where there's an earring in one shot. And if you look carefully later, the earring has gone. And it's it's a nice bit of foreshadowing later. The the I liked everything with the, the spaceship. And there's some interesting thing designs in the spaceship that are actually from the, the original design sketches that Carpenter didn't use, which I really liked. And I'll always like Mary Elizabeth Winstead running around in danger deciding to fight back against something. Like that's just gonna work for me on every level. So there's a lot about 2011 I did like, but it it's just a shame some of it's so dumb and not, not enjoyably dumb, but some big logic holes and some decisions that people just wouldn't make. And there's many moments in this film where you're kind of thinking, if you just do this, you'll be fine. Like she, she manages to separate them between fillings and no fillings. And then she's like, okay, you two, go and get the Americans from outside. <laughs> like, what, what, why? Yeah, why, would, dip, why wouldn't you maybe... With, yeah, deal with least, this first. <laughs> at least in the 82 version, they tied everybody up because they thought yeah. it was the thing, right? Yeah. She's like, let's, let's split in half the amount of people we know aren't the thing to go and get, to go outside to get things that, humans that may be the thing, to bring them back to check if they're the thing, while these three that we're pretty sure might be the thing stand here, now there's two of us and three of them. It's just dumb. It's like, you're, you're right. At least in 82, there's some context to it all. But it's um, this is really stupid decisions in this film. But even with all that, I really enjoyed it. And honestly, I absolutely, one of my favorite things I loved was that they answer the question that Doc asks in 82, which is what the hell happened here? And they take lots and lots of elements from 82 and use them as direct story elements and then tell us how they got to that point. And going from um, one to the other was really satisfying to see that crossover. So I watched them them in release order and you could definitely tell every time they, you know, there was like a, a burn on the wall in 82 when they're investigating the Norwegian base. And then in 2011 at the Norwegian base, you see how that wall gets burned mm-hmm. and you sort of, you get to see why this flying saucer is uncovered in 82 because it wasn't mm-hmm. in 2011 or initially. Um, and the origins of there's an ax and a few other yeah. things. And you're right. That anyone who thought that this, cause the, the real tie in to 
82 from 2011 is during the end credits in which they basically reenact the entire scene of the helicopter chasing the dog across the Arctic plain, mm-hmm. Antarctic plain. And you could really almost say, well, they just tacked that on so they could make them connected, make one a prequel to the other. But there's enough elements in this that you know that they did it on purpose. Oh, yeah. Uh, rather exactly. than just being a straight remake, which is oh, what yeah. they sort of advertised it as, really, though, yeah, in my right. memory, that they just advertised it as a remake. Um, and I That's do think clever. it's probably stronger as a result. Yeah. But and then the other thing to to talk about is just the effects, which and to be clear, the effects in this are actually very good. The CGI is very well rendered. It doesn't stick out. Well, it doesn't always stick out like a sore thumb, as it does in many films from like say you know two thousand to two thousand and twelve. Uh, especially when there was a sort of gratuitous overuse, a period of gratuitous overuse of CGI uh, yeah. for for main plot elements. Anyway, yeah. uh, not that CGI isn't completely overused now, but it's it's just a tool, right? Um, but the problem is that you can just see too much. It's not the CGI itself. It's the same problem that they had with the original cut of Alien, right? The first cut of Alien that they ever like viewed after production they figured out that, that the alien just wasn't scary and the reason it wasn't scary is that you could just see it all the time <laughs> yeah. uh, and all of the effects in the 1982 the thing uh, are often obscured in shadow like some of the most effective stuff is just something happening in the background or you know the there's a thing but it's you know obscured by fire or shadow or a wall or something or something to sort of hide how ultimately in real life cheap it would have looked <laughs> how obviously fake it would have looked. Um, but in this movie, the CGI is on full display all the time. And you just see, it's never as scary when I can see it as when I have to imagine it. Right. Uh, it's very interesting. I going from 1122 because going from the CG to the practical effects, the CG effects actually in 11 you see are, are way more grotesque like it's it way more goes on um but there's i wonder if the brain there's something in the brain that knows if it's looking at computers versus a physical object because i found 82 way more disturbing to watch just almost through like fingers still after all this time and and when i watched 11 the problem with 11 is that um, 82's thing has been hugely influential in many parts of media. And one of those parts has, was the video game Dead Space in 2008. And all the aliens in 2011 looked like Dead Space aliens. Like they look identical to what you've seen in Dead Space. And so there's, there's no, sh- for me, no shock factor because I've seen this before. And also my I'm looking at something and thinking, well, that's an interesting computer graphic of a head bursting out of another head or merging with another head but when when i watched 82 i didn't have any of that because i'm watching these things like burst and bubble and there's a wonderful moment if you remember when um one of the heads uh kind of wriggles off the corpse and Mm -hmm. like all that green pus bubbles out underneath yeah it's so literal it is so physical and literal it's disgusting i didn't feel that once in in 11 i think that's one of its major downfalls is that the thing is not grotesque or scary at all it's pretty graphic but 
not in a way that's moving at all in the same way that 82 is. So I've been thinking a lot about the CG versus the practical. I've, I've no problem with CG if used well. I just don't think it was uh, an advisable thing to use in 2011. The problem is that CG now is much, much cheaper than any kind of practical effects. Like, and, and you don't have to reset the entire soundstage when you want to do another take. You just put the person up against the green tennis ball and do it again. Yeah. So, well, I think I think ultimately there's, you know, there's a couple of problems there that CGI lends itself to, and one is that in the original, and I think there's a lot of shows that I like that use practical effects that really hammer this home, and that is that in the 1982s thing, when something is happening with the thing, it's a real thing that the actors are playing off and against. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas in 2011, you don't really get that because the actors are playing against the camera or a tennis ball or a green screen and the alien is put in later. So it, you can sort of tell in that regard that it's not a genuine reaction, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Oh, no, absolutely. You can many actors in Lord of the Rings and Star Wars had this problem that they were, you don't see natural reactions when you're just fully imagining it. If you can see that thing in front of you, and it's the same in Alien as well, right? With the chest, chest burster in Alien. Oh yeah. 100%. Those re- those reactions are because uh, Veronica, oh, help me, Veronica, Bell, no, what's her last name? She, they used animal guts and they heated up under the lights and they used too much and she got a face full of of like cow guts in her face and you could see on camera the reaction to that you're never going to get that with cg just not going to happen so you're totally right yeah and like not to use too niche of an example but a good example of that is the television show farscape in which was made by the jim henson studios so all the alien creatures in that science fiction show are are puppets and there's a real physicality to their presence on set and there's a much more naturalistic interaction between the human actors and the puppets because they can physically interact. Yeah. Even if you just take aside for a moment, the, that one, so there's that scene you were mentioning where the two faces merge together, where the thing like mm-hmm. becomes this upside down human scorpion and then like jumps on another person and merges that person into its being. But you never once that process starts you don't ever see the alien in the same frame as a human again right you see people reacting and you see the alien but there's no cinematic language to really put those two things together as opposed to 82 where sure when the doc is trying to uh administer the defibrillator to the guy having a heart attack and the guy's mm. chest opens up and becomes a giant mouth and bites his arms off like oh, it yeah, is very right. clearly uh, a practical effect and you can imme- as soon as the camera changes you can see what's going on but then that thing stays on frame with people around it freaking out <laughs> yeah it's, it's so very well done. it's very clear that they're there to- together mm-hmm. and in you know in a modern version of that that just doesn't isn't always the case and, and not to be too pedantic as well, but lighting is a huge part of this as well. Like they, the way light falls on physical objects is still very, very different to how it falls on a CGI object. And we've seen this in, in uh, like Star Wars, again, is a great example of models versus CG. And 
you the the uh, the physicality of models ages much better than the best CG you've got at the time that's made, uh, and I think that's the case here as well. And I think everything looks more real. I think that um, I mean I think that's it's a much more nuanced discussion than we're having because I I do think especially now they can definitely get lighting and shadows correct in CG, but it's always going to be hard when it's on a moving being. And then also ultimately there's still the uncanny valley effect, right? Like yeah. if you find even when it's an upside down human scorpion with two faces, it doesn't quite work because it looks so close to being real that your bot your mind finds it repulsive. Yeah. <laughs> You know, that's that's the uncanny valley right the closer you get to something being real you're fine with it you're fine with it you're fine with it and then like the last two percent the graph of human acceptance of a human face dips mm. all, almost all the way to zero because very very close to but not quite human is repulsive to us yeah. and if that had been a model or even just two actors in a really fucked up makeup and prosthetics rig it might have been more successful <laughs> Yeah, and ADT does makes a really interesting decision. The the Blu-ray is not very good. In fact, it's hilariously bad. The extras on the Blu-ray, uh, just on this topic, there's one moment where a flat panel says there was another version of the end of the thing that included uh, more shots of the dogs and a voiceover. And this was done for syndicated television. I'm like, oh, amazing. I've never seen this before. And then it's like, yep. <laughs> and then <it> just yeah. ends. <laughs> but um, in the Blu-ray, they show that the um, the uh, initial designs were, were a lot more human. They've got some sketches there that are a lot more human. And what I love is that the more they developed it, the thing, like if you think about what you see when it first bursts out of the dog and the first time they see it in the dog cage in 82, there is no human element to it whatsoever. It is like a mass of organic like thrashing organic material and i i think when you don't have a human comparison then things look even more disgusting and alien and mm-hmm. but in 2011 many of the things forms were were recognizable as humanoid even merged humans and again like you said that opens up your un- uncanny valley even more because you're kind of recognizing some things that don't look right yeah. Do you think we'll ever go back to like no CG practical effects? No, never. Sci-fi horror kind of thing. It's I think that expensive. I think even in I will say that I think that CGI has been used to much greater effect in the last ten years than compared to the ten years between say two thousand one two thousand eleven. And but we're never going to not have CG at this point because it's just everywhere. Um, if you watch a television show chances are you've watched a ton of CG without even knowing it because they will build, you know, um, they'll build like a kitchen set and rather than have it be outside, they'll just put a CGI green screen outside the window and then CGI in and outside. Yeah. And that kind of thing is never going away. CGI is never going away. Um, what I do think is that it's being more and more recognized as being a very good tool and not being relied upon so heavily as it was in this film, you know? Um, And a really good example of that would be, and this is actually from, I think the year before, and as much as I hate to bring up Army Hammer because we've canceled him, but Mm. (laughs) two in the social network, 
the Winklevoss twins are played by one guy, and it is almost seamless. Yeah, well, if you don't want to talk about them, let's talk about Jake Gyllenhaal in Enemy, where he talks to himself, and that is on a similar level. Yeah, sure. Um, or even just like you don't even realize it, like um, if you watch The Wolf of Wall Street, which is from about 2013, oh, yeah, uh, okay. there's uh, one long sweeping shot where they fly over a peninsula and show a bunch of ritzy beach houses that don't exist in real life. <laughs> it's they just made got the shot in a helicopter or a drone and then CGI'd in the entire community and a whole party in one of the houses. That's a so, really interesting um, example, actually, because there is a ton of CGI in Wolf of Wall Street that you never, ever thought what would be CGI. Yeah, and even a more contemporary uh, example would be in, you know, in Avengers Endgame, they all walk to the time machine and they're all wearing matching time travel suits. But in real life, they were just wearing their normal superhero costumes, and that was all changed in post with CGI later. And you could never tell if I, like, I didn't know that until I read it like a month later. Because <laughs> uh, it's just like CGI is really good. Certain things about CGI are really hard. Like, you know, Zack Snyder, the Justice League version with Henry Cavill with no mustache, with a CGI to weigh mustache, is never going to look quite right. Mm-hmm. Because it, it's really hard to do things to people with CGI. But it's a really useful tool. And for, for certain things. And so, no, it's right. never going to go away, ever. Right. So, um, so we're, uh, I think we're over an hour at this point, but should we talk a little bit about what we liked, what we liked uh, yes. about all three and what we liked about how they were the same and how they were different? Yep. What was your favorite thing about them that was the same? Um, the, obviously the paranoia as central part of the, of each of the stories is the, the paranoia based on each other. And the, the, the best part about that is that it's a guessing game for the audience as well. Like we're, it's the most enjoyable when we're in on it, where we don't know who's who and what's what. And it also makes a second and third watch, um, enjoyable as well, because you know who the thing is on the second or third time. And so especially in 82, the actors who turn out to be the thing are actually giving you a ton of little moments that are little clues that you only know that they're clues if you know that they're the thing. That I love things like that. I love rewatch um, moments. So for me, the, the, the idea of everyone turning on each other is a very, very satisfying narrative technique for me. How about you? Uh, so my favourite thing, having rewatched. So it's a true story. I'd never actually seen the 1951 thing from another world. So I watched it for the first time and then watching 82 in 2011 over the course of three days was actually just seeing how much they still had in common despite being so removed from one another. Cause obviously 82 is what, 30 years after 51 and then 2000, 2011 is 40 year, 30 years after that. But they, they do all share that sense of paranoia. And I actually found it really interesting how, they both took different cues from the 1951 version, like how in yeah. 82, the alien just shows up, but in 2011, they actually go to the extent of, you know, digging up the alien and bringing it inside and thawing the block of ice, which is straight out of a 51 version. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, there's a lot of classic elements in the story that are pretty, pretty universal and mm-hmm. good as long as you don't, do them stupidly right <laughs> yeah 
I mean, that, that's another main takeaway in comparison between 2011 and 80, 81. Where are we? 82? 82. 82 and Eddie yeah. Is the very average direction of 11 and then you start watching 82 and you're like wow every shot every like hue the the 2011 really rushes and and i find many movies these days really rush to get to the good stuff like who are you i'm uh, i'm going to introduce myself directly uh to the next person and say what my role is in this movie and then we're going to get to the story and um that's that's a more common thing to find these days. So going from 2011, where everyone explains everything and rushes, going to John Carpenter's movie, where he just takes his damn time and you'll get the context you get at that moment and that's all you need. And just the, the, the pace, just slowing down that pace and allowing that dread to build uh, before you pull that switch and accelerate was a real pleasure for me. Mm. I did also really like that they all came up with basically the same idea on how to test for the thing but then that plan wouldn't work yes yeah <laughs> uh and then they all had to come up with different ideas obviously the 51 version doesn't need to test people for the thing because it's not taking over and replacing people yeah um but the wire in the blood thing is straight out of the original story apparently from in 82 i'd like to read the story now yeah and uh i do say i will say I do think their test where she looks in their mouths to look at fillings is, I mean, you mentioned it was dumb for just story reasons because she separated the people and then was like, okay, let's just carry on with the story now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I thought it was dumb because they already know that this thing will morph into a giant oozing monster that will bite your face off. So yeah, yeah. let's look directly into yes. its open mouth. Yes. Say, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, no, I mean... I wonder actually sometimes if those dumb moments are put in there purely to make the audience go, what are you doing? Why nobody would do that. Or maybe, maybe the last two years has proven that some people would do that. They would look, they would look directly into the thing and tell us not to kill him because that's uh, encroaching on his free speech. Who knows? I mean, yeah, maybe who knows? I mean, I think there's a, there's a great, um, I can't remember if it's a quote or just a response to a question, but there's a, a story about Alfred Hitchcock where he's talking about two characters in a, at a, in a room sitting at a table and there's a bomb under the table. And uh, someone, someone asks, like, why don't they know about the bomb or why don't they call the police? And he says, well, because then there'd be no movie. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> and I think we kind of, you know, sometimes we take that a little too far in that, like, sure, they need to figure out who the thing is, but maybe they should spend a few more moments other than looking directly into the monster's mouth, yes, you know, yes. like, it would have been a more interesting subversion to me if they'd said, well, why don't we do this blood serum test, which is the same thing they said in 51 and the same thing they said in 82. But then in this one, maybe the blood wasn't stolen. Maybe the alien hadn't got there yet. Maybe they were actually able to execute that plan. That would have been more interesting to me. But I mean, ultimately 2011's thing, the thing I think I, I like about it the least is just that it's, not trying to be its own thing, you know, um, which I know is confusing yeah, no, verbiage yeah. given that the movie's called The Thing, but it's very much trying to be you know, a prequel to and a remake of 1982's The Thing, and it's not really trying to do anything unique or interesting with the premise. It's just trying yeah. to do that one over again, and that's just never going to be as satisfying. 
no, you're totally right. I there were a few moments in that film where I was just thinking, what? Why does this film exist? Like, what is it doing that is any different from what's been done? Does it need to be different? That's a different question. But if they if they were to make a direct sequel to eighty two now, where would they go with it now? Would it? You couldn't just do another Ice Space. And I think twenty eleven could have had a, a bit more liberty. I know they they set themselves a target of ticking all those prequel um, elements, like finding the points in the original movie and finding a, a reason for them to exist. But uh, you're right, they, they could have been more there, could have been a bit more creative. Or they just could have had an idea beyond, let's remake the thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit disappointing. But I mean, that being said, again, I don't dislike the movie. I just think it's fine. Yeah. Oh, I like it. Yeah. I mean, I... I Look, movies like that often get more of a free pass for me because I just find them so entertaining. I love like uh, people trapped in a location with a sci-fi monster with a plucky young female lead fighting back is is pretty much my jam. So yeah, I love things like that. Mm -hmm. What did you think of the... Uh, so one of the things in common in the 2011 and 1951 is that they find the spacecraft and they find the alien being. Um, what did you think about the different ways they explored that in the two movies? Um, well, I, like I said earlier, 1951, you don't, you don't see anything. You just get them to describe what they can see. Um, but also in 51, the guy puts a blanket over it. His job is to like guard this thing and make sure they smash a window to make sure it doesn't defrost. Oh, and then he, he throws a heated blanket he, over he, it too. He's like, oh, I'm a little cold. So he put the, no, no, he's because he's scared of the face. So he puts a heated blanket over this thing that they've established they do not want to melt. And then he puts headphones on and turns his back to it. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe, the, maybe they're all a bit dumb in their own way. Well, but and they also, the, they definitely solve, the 1951 one solves the budgetary problem of how do we show a flying saucer by showing a crash site with just a tail fin. Yes. And then having the military guys be like, let's melt the ice get the thermite boys yes. and then miraculously the thermite <laughs> causes the ship to explode like yeah. it's or maybe they, they write it out they say they say it's like a reaction with the atmosphere which makes even less sense yeah but either way you never see the spaceship other than this tail fin because they destroy it immediately yes oh too bad and i did i did laugh at the uh, oh there's an alien ship let's blow it up so we can get to it yeah <laughs> it's like oh no it exploded who saw that coming yeah yeah but it's, you know, I, they are, all three of them, delightful for me in a very different way. Like, uh, the, the, I enjoyed them for very, very different reasons. And I, I really enjoyed going through all three of them um, just to see how they connect and, and see their different personalities. Yeah. I mean, again, I did too. I, I liked all of them. If I had to rank them, I would put 82 at the top and 2011 at the bottom. But I did like all three mm -hmm. of them. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and honestly, now that I own the 1951 one, I'm probably going to be watching it again in the near future. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And that's, it's, uh, it's definitely the kind of thing you could put on in the background whilst doing something else. Yeah. Well, just, you know, beware that, uh, a future edition of this make remake idea is going to be the fly and the fly. So we'll be watching another. Ooh. And the fly too, or is that just stretch? That's just, a, that's just, that's just a sequel. It's fine. It's not really Wait, a remake. Where, didn't oh is it eric stoltz he's in, in the sequel yeah he's he's the, the sequel, fly right? he's the fly in the fly too yeah right 
So does that count as a remake? Well, no, because it's it... not good. So <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that was a prerequisite. Well, not exactly. I just have no inclination to watch that one. That one is very much billed as a sequel. Whereas, and to be fair, 2011's The Thing is a prequel, but it was very much billed as a remake. So that's sort of why we, why I let it slide through this time. Right, right. Right. But like, yeah, if we were right. going to do, say, an episode where we talked about, say, The Seven Samurai, then I would want to talk about Seven Samurai and then definitely The Magnificent Seven and then maybe the Magnificent Seven remake, and then maybe something like the Avengers, which is very clearly just Seven Samurai again, but with superheroes. But I wouldn't yeah. want to necessarily talk about like the Magnificent Seven rides again, or the Magnificent Seven, because like, there's like eight Magnificent Seven sequels through the 70s. Like, if we want to talk about all of those, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, that would be ahead of a podcast if we did all of the Magnificent Sevens. Yeah, it really would. It really would. But to be perfectly honest, I would be far more inclined to do 310 to Yuma first. Oh, that's a good film. Yeah. yeah, they both are. They both are. Oh, I have only seen one of them. Okay, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, the, the Russell Crowe and uh, Christian Bale one is a remake mm-hmm. of a 60s Western. It's really good. Well, well there's lots to do. Yeah. This, is, this idea's got legs. It does. It does. Any hoodles. Okay, um, so that's, that's the thing, the thing, and the thing. Yeah. You hopefully you enjoyed this diversion from our usual content uh next week we will be back discussing two television shows neither of which i'm allowed to tell you what they're called yet but that's we'll be discussing two television shows on our movie podcast (laughs) um because we're professionals um in the meantime uh as always if you have enjoyed this then please give us a like or a review or a follow or subscribe or whatever you want to do on your local podcasting platform of choice and if you'd like to support us a little more directly we'd have a patreon and a ko-fi and you can find both of those linked from the site which is awesomefriday.ca But most of all, we'd like to thank you all for listening. We appreciate each and every one of you. And uh, we love you all. Ready, Dave? Yeah. Watch Uh, for the skies. Watch (laughs) for the skies. (laughs) Uh, If you'd like to stream any of these movies as well, if you head to to the website and head to this podcast episodes page, there are streaming links for all of them. Uh, to buy, rent, or stream, uh, depending which platforms are available in your region. And with that, uh, let's. I think we're going to sign off. So thank yep. you again for listening, and we'll talk to you in a week. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.